Well, good morning. Um, I, I really love you guys, and I'm thankful to Pastor Michael for this opportunity to be with you. Chandra and I uh, are exceedingly grateful to be here this morning and to give you an update on life and ministry in Portland. You guys are our sending church, our friends, and our faith family. As Paul wrote to the Philippians, he said, I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all, making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And we are grateful for your partnership with us in the gospel as we are sent out on mission in the city of Portland. And so this morning, I'm going to weave a bit of an update into our sermon time together from John 4. So if you have your Bible, please turn to John 4. And as you're turning there, I'll offer this prayer for us from Psalm 119 as we prepare to both hear and respond to God's word. With our whole heart, we seek you. Let us not wander from your commandments. We have stored up your word in our hearts that we might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach us your statutes. With our lips, we declare all the rules of your mouth. In the way of your testimonies, we delight as much as in all riches. We will meditate on your precepts and fix our eyes on your ways. We will delight in your statutes. We will not forget your word. May it be, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning we'll spend the bulk of our time considering Jesus' interaction with the woman at the well in John 4, and then we'll close with this twofold response of the woman in both her worship and her witness. So when point number one goes really long, don't get nervous that there are two more to come, okay? So we're planning to spend the bulk of our time on this front-end interaction of Jesus with the woman at the well, and then we'll, we'll close with a little brevity as it relates to her response of both worship and witness. So the big idea that I have for us this morning from John 4 is encountering Jesus quenches our deepest thirst, transforms our worship, and aligns our lives with him, with Jesus, and his life-giving message. So with that in mind, uh, bear with me. Let's work through this, uh, read through the text together. I'll be reading all 42 verses uh, that, that capture this story. So beginning in John chapter 4, verse 1. Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And he had to pass through Samaria, so he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar and near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour, about noon. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God, and who it is that is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to her, sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? 
He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. Jesus said to her, everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go call your husband and come here. The woman answered, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here, when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming, he who is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Just then his disciples came back. They marveled that he was talking with a woman, but no one said, what do you seek or why are you talking with her? So the woman left her water jar, went away into town and said to the people, Come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? They went out of the town and were coming to him. Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that fields are white for harvest. Already the one who reaps is receiving wages and gathering fruit for eternal life, so that the sower and reaper may rejoice together. For here the saying holds true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. He told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his word. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. Amen. The first point I want to draw from this text is that Jesus fully quenches and truly satisfies our deepest thirst. And we have to begin with just a little bit of background so we can grasp the weight of what's happening in this interaction. So just by way of refresher, let's work through this together. Our passage begins with Jesus leaving Judea for Galilee and needing to pass through Samaria. And the weight of this is understanding the history behind Samaria. And what we need to remember is that King Solomon's uh, foolish son, Rehoboam, uh, was responsible for the dividing of the kingdom. The southern kingdom of Judah uh, with Jerusalem as its capital, capital and the northern kingdom of Israel with Samaria as its capital. Both kingdoms would eventually come under God's judgment by the surrounding nations and they would be defeated in battle and carried away into captivity. 
Now, when this happened among the people in uh, the kingdom of Israel, the Assyrians who had defeated them in battle, carried away their people, left some of the poorest of the land. And then they sent in some non-Jews into the land to live amongst the Jews. And during that time, there was this intermarriage uh, thing that would happen between the Jews and the non-Jews. And what happened was it produced a mixed race of people who were then despised and rejected by the Jews who returned to the land after their period of captivity. So not only were the Samaritans then considered a defiled people, but they also rejected Jerusalem as the proper place of worship, opting instead for Mount Gerizim in Samaria. So with all that background, here's the reason I give it to us. One is to set the scene for Jesus' encounter with this woman of Samaria at the well. And then two, to emphasize from the outset the redemptive love and compassion that Jesus has for all the peoples of the earth. We can't miss that. The redemptive love and compassion that Jesus has for all peoples. It is with a Samaritan woman, this woman despised and rejected by the people of Israel because of her ethnic heritage, because of her false worship, not to mention her sordid sexual past, with whom Jesus initiates this life-giving, thirst-quenching conversation. This is quite a different conversation than is recorded for us in John 3, where Jesus has a conversation with Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. D.A. Carson points out some of the differences between this uh, conversation uh, with Nicodemus and the conversation or the the characteristics of this woman of Samaria in John chapter 4, and then clues us in on one key similarity. Of the differences, he writes, uh, writes, Nicodemus was learned, powerful, respected, orthodox, theologically trained. She, this woman of Samaria, was unschooled, without influence, despised, capable of only folk religion. Nicodemus was a man, a Jew, a ruler. She was a woman, a Samaritan, a moral outcast. And yet the key similarity, they both needed Jesus. And so Nicodemus and the woman of Samaria were both, we could use the word, thirsty. And I'm going to use the word thirsty to uh, refer to our need for salvation from the penalty and the power of sin. In fact, uh, college students, you can uh, vouch for me here. I understand. I have a a friend in Portland. His name is Eric Solace, and he is a Christian hip-hop artist who is also planting a church. And he has told me that to be thirsty... Uh, as it's used on the streets, is to refer to somebody who's like looking with longing or envy. So say you're with your friend and he's looking at this tricked out car, you would say, bro, you're looking thirsty. Am I right? Somebody help me. Huh? Thanks. So, um, so even our urban American streets, they ultimately make the same conclusion as the Bible. We're thirsty We're looking for something or someone to fully quench and truly satisfy our thirst. There is not a person on this planet who is not in need of having their deepest thirst quenched by Jesus. And as we have been designed by God, all of our true and deepest thirst can only be fully quenched and truly satisfied in Jesus. 
from the morally upright religious leader like Nicodemus to the cultural outcast with a sordid sexual past like the woman of Samaria whose life is characterized by false worship, we're all thirsty. And as a generalization, okay, let that generalization word, word sit for a moment. As a generalization, having spent most of my life in the South and now the last three and a half years in the Pacific Northwest, I believe John 3 and John 4 capture to some degree the differences uh, in culture and ministry between the South and the Pacific Northwest. We could say, as a generalization, ministry in the South is more John 3 type ministry, while ministry in the Pacific Northwest is more John 4 type ministry. Let me explain. In the South, there's still some general governing sense of shared morality along with a religious understanding and respectability, like what you would see with Nicodemus. This is not to say that gospel ministry in the South is easy. It's not. Like Nicodemus, many in the South lack a real understanding and experience of being born again by the Spirit through the word of the gospel. There are real ministry challenges in the South. A John 3 ministry is not easy, but it is different from a John 4 ministry. Jesus' interaction with a Samaritan woman better captures the cultural challenges and gospel rejection of our Pacific Northwest urban culture. Unlike the religious respectability of those like Nicodemus, many of our friends and neighbors choose to live in the Pacific Northwest precisely for, and I quote, the reason to escape the religious oppression of the South. You see, in the Pacific Northwest, particularly in our city, in our urban context in Portland, you can be and you can do anything you want without fear of judgment or any feelings of shame. That is, unless you hold to historic Orthodox Christian beliefs. Uh, but that's another story. But there is this freedom in our city to live a John 4 life. And the challenges have continued to intensify. Over the last 20 years, the population in our city, not the metro area, but in our city alone has increased by more than 140,000 people. During that time, we already had a minimal Christian influence and such a limited Southern Baptist influence, it can barely be measured. Over these 20 years where we've increased in population, we've not planted one English-speaking Southern Baptist church. So what then is the net effect then as it relates to our friends and neighbors who live in our city who are thirsty? It means that they are living a John 4 life with limited access to living water. That's the result. That, that's the life and ministry of being in the Pacific Northwest. So let's consider together how Jesus draws the Samaritan woman's need for living water. How he draws that out. How he gets to that place. And I would just submit to you that even as, as a generalization in a John 3 ministry culture, the same way that Jesus interacts with this woman, these are the principles that you can put into place in your life as you live your life on mission here in Tuscaloosa. Jesus begins by affirming her humanity. He does this in two ways. First, Jesus speaks personally and directly to her. The passage tells us she's come to the, uh, draw water at noon. She's presumably alone. 
And though Jesus is aware of her past and, and her current station in life, he speaks to her. This is a big deal. Remember, Jews have nothing to do with Samaritans, much less women of Samaria. And yet Jesus speaks to her. If we are going to obey the command of Jesus to make disciples, it begins by affirming the humanity and worth of all people by engaging them personally and directly in conversation. I assure you, you will not have a gospel conversation if you do not engage with somebody personally and directly. This is where Jesus begins. We affirm others in this way by saying to them, you are worthy of my time. You are worthy of my attention. You are worthy of my interest. We live in a time and place where we too often either ignore or talk past those who would be different than us. But effective disciple-making begins with an affirmation of humanity. We're saying, you are not a project. You are not my enemy. You are a person created in God's image. You are my neighbor whom I will love as I love myself. Second, Jesus affirms her humanity by asking something from her. This is interesting. Though Jesus has what she most desperately needs, he begins by asking her to give him a drink. In John Perkins' book, Restoring At-Risk Communities, he writes of this. He says, Jesus wanted her to know that she could help him. By talking to her and asking for help, demonstrating that she had something of value that she could share with him, Jesus affirmed her dignity and broke down the wall of distrust. He goes on to say that once Jesus has affirmed her around her felt need, he was then in a position to show her her deeper spiritual need. And so this is what Jesus is doing as he's having this conversation with her. He is affirming her humanity. He is bestowing worth and honor and dignity on her by engaging this woman who, by outward appearances, would have nothing to offer, and yet giving her worth as she serves him water. Both Nicodemus and the Samaritan woman share the same need. They needed to be given new life by the Spirit through faith in Jesus But ultimately, the method was slightly different in the way that this played out based on station in life, based on culture, based on experience. And if we're going to be fruitful disciple makers, we must learn to pattern our obedience after that of Jesus, beginning with a wise discernment of the person with whom we're engaging in conversation, and then by affirming their humanity based on what we know about them due to their uh, their experiences, their station in life, etc., So my question for you is, is there someone that you regularly see or someone you know that you can affirm their humanity this week? I'll tell you a simple way to do this. I learned this from a friend of mine who planted and now pastors a church in Nashville. He said, when you go to the grocery store this week, cashier's going to have their name right here. You say their name and you say, hi, John, what is your favorite candy bar? When they tell you what it is, you pick it up off the shelf, scan it through with your groceries, and hand it to them as a gift. And you tell them, hey, I just wanted to serve you today. I'm so grateful for the way that you're in our community and what you're doing here in this place of employment. And if a 
conversation progresses, we have a gospel inroad. These are easy ways to take notice of people, to engage them personally and directly, to affirm their humanity. You cannot get to the gospel without doing these things. These are not wastes of time. These are important principles and practices that we can put into the normal daily rhythms of our lives so that we're more intentionally on mission, just like Jesus was. So after Jesus affirms her humanity, he then exposes her need. What she really needs is living water. She has sought to quench her thirst through this series of unhealthy relationships and through a worship of God, not in spirit and truth, but in rituals and falsehood. And in exposing the Samaritan woman's need for living water, what Jesus is really doing, he's exposing all of our need. He's exposing all of our need for living water. We all, like the Samaritan woman, are thirsty. And unfortunately, like her, we attempt to quench our thirst through all manner of the things of this world, things which cannot fully and truly satisfy or quench our thirst. The problem for us is when we are trying to quench our thirst like the Samaritan woman in a relationship, in a job, in a hobby, uh, uh, in a family, whatever the case may be, when we're trying to quench our thirst apart from Jesus, we're like the Samaritan woman. It's like drinking salt water. You ever been... Really thirsty, they say, like, if you're stranded on a boat, you're not really supposed to drink the salt water because, do I have a science teacher here that would make you more thirsty and ultimately you'll dehydrate you and you will die? That's what, that's what life is like when we're trying to quench our thirst apart from Jesus. Amen. You think, oh, if I just have these things? No, it, it, it makes you more thirsty and it leads you down a path of destruction or death. Or if I just have this person, then, then I won't be thirsty anymore. It leads you down a path. You'll become more thirsty, and it'll ultimately lead to your death. So with the Samaritan woman, Jesus is exposing our need for living water by showing us that everything else is like salt water. Nothing outside of Jesus can truly and fully satisfy and quench our thirst. So Jesus moves along. He see him affirming humanity, exposing need. And Jesus doesn't stop there. Thank God Jesus doesn't stop there. Like, all right, you're thirsty. Now what? Jesus goes in and he makes a clear gospel call. He offers to quench our thirst with living water, which he says is the gift of God, offering eternal satisfaction. In verse 14, he says, Whoever drinks the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water, welling up to eternal life. Remember in John 3, water uh, symbolizes not only new life, but cleansing. This is what Jesus is offering as the gift of God. This eternal life of uh, living water that brings cleansing, which brings uh, satisfaction and joy. It is found in him. We need this because like Jeremiah says, uh, when he says that God says, my people have committed a couple of evils. One, they have forsaken me, the fountain of living waters. And two, then they hew, hewed out cisterns from them, for themselves, but they're, they're broken cisterns. They can't actually hold any water. To reject Jesus, to live in unbelief and disobedience is to attempt to quench our thirst apart from him. It's like living with a broken cistern that can hold no water. But the good news is Jesus can and will satisfy our spiritual thirst for all who respond in faith to him. This is the good news of the gospel for us. I want us to notice, finally, before we press on to the back half of, the, of these verses, that 
In Jesus affirming the woman's humanity and exposing her need and making a clear gospel call, I want us just to take note of where it happens. It happens on the way at the well. Such must be the nature of our lives as disciples of Jesus in the kingdom of God. We cannot wait until our friends and neighbors show up at a gathering of our church on a Sunday to hear the gospel. In fact, in our city, if you try to hold your breath for a friend or neighbor, an unbelieving friend or neighbor, to show up at a gathering of your church, you're going to die. You cannot hold your breath that long. We cannot hold our, our breath for our friends and neighbors to show up at a gathering of our church. All of our lives, the totality of our lives, must be lived on mission. This means a couple of things. One, it means we have to uh, we cannot, we can no longer compartmentalize our lives. No, uh, we don't have a work life and a family life and a community life and a church life. No, we have a life under the lordship of Jesus that is played out in these different vocations, as Martin Luther uh, called it, these different callings in our life, but they all are lived out under the lordship of Jesus on mission. Our lives must be leveraged on the way at the well. I'll share with you just a couple of practical ways this is happening in Portland. One, I'll share with you a personal example. Uh, my on the way at the well, I like to go in the mornings to West Coast Fitness. And uh, I, I show up, and I'm like the only person there without gray hair. But it's, Portland has given it to me just a little bit. But anyway, there's a guy named Ken there. He's a retired machinist, and he works at a local hardware store part-time. And... Um, it was great because I worked at a hardware store through high school and college and seminary, nine years worth of hardware stores. So we have some things in common to, to chat about. And the interesting thing about Ken is uh, over the last few months, Ken has started talking to me about politics. The thing I find so interesting is that Ken is a guy who's actually from Portland, but it's conservative politics. So I'm just listening to Ken and... Um, We've had some good conversations along the way. He knows that we're, I'm a pastor and planting a church, knows that I'm a Christian. Um, but then after the, the shootings that happened at a church in Texas, uh, Ken came in the next day, and he was really distraught over this, about the, the, what he would say, the moral decline that's happening in our country, which created some pathways. I'm on the way, at the well, and we have this good gospel conversation. I start talking about... Uh, what Jesus does in the gospel, Ephesians 2, uniting people together, breaking down the wall of hostility. And then Ken says, well, you know, I, I really love the Ten Commandments, except for when I, I've read them, it's like, nobody can do that. It's like, all right, thank you, Lord, there's another one. So he said, that's right, God, you know, God reveals his holy and just and righteous character in that but also shows us our need, our inability to live up to God's holy and righteous standards, which is why he sent Jesus. He's willing, able to go through the whole gospel with Ken that morning. That morning he didn't repent and believe, but it was a really powerful moment. It was on the way at the well. It was, uh, and at the end of that conversation, Ken said, um, you know, I think uh, people in our country need a lot more evangelizing like this. So it's like, praise the Lord. Um, when I understand ev evangelism, uh, one of the reasons I think that we have some challenges is because we think, well, what about this going through the line of the grocery store? What, what difference does that make? Or what difference could a single conversation with Ken at West Coast Fitness make? Well, if we view evangelism more like a spectrum, I, I saw this from some professors at, a, a, at Liberty University. They say um, 
If, if zero is like the moment that the Spirit, through the word of the gospel, regenerates, bringing new spiritual life to someone, enabling them to repent and believe, then um, a minus eight would be somebody who is living in just uh, vehement denial and hostility toward all things that, re- that revolve around the gospel. Uh, so what you're doing in evangelism, you're trying to move people along by the work of the Spirit, through the word of the gospel, to this place of regeneration, of conversion. And so I just believe that in that conversation with Ken, what happened was Ken is not that hostile to the gospel, so maybe Ken's a minus four. But by God's grace, after that conversation, maybe Ken's heart is softened more so that he moves into a minus three. And then over time, maybe God will put somebody else in Ken's path, or I'll have other opportunities to have conversations with him, moving him along this path to repent and believe. And this is just happening on the way at the well. I want to share one more story of this, and it's um, last, uh, well, this year, early this year, we had this young couple there in their early 20s move out to Portland from Raleigh, North Carolina. Um, uh, When the husband was a college student, he had come and spent two summers working with our plant in Portland. So when he graduated and got married, he told his wife, we, I want to go and be a part of church planting in Portland uh, with the Martins at Bridge City. And so they moved, and it's been a really cool experience. They have modeled the best I've ever seen of just on the way, at the well. Uh, so uh, coming into the fall, I had mentioned, because they were doing, having such good conversations, I said, why don't we try to strengthen what God is doing in you? Let's read through Tim Keller's book, The Reason for God. So uh, Will's response was, well, can we invite one of my unbelieving friends to do this? Like, yeah, let's invite them to come do that too. And then his wife, Casey, was like, well, I have these unbelieving friends. Can they come and do it too? We're like, absolutely. So we set up this Friday morning at a local coffee shop to read the reason for God. And as it turns out, only Will's friend has shown up to be a part of this uh, conversation. But it's been a really cool experience because Will met this guy, don't freak out, at the pub on Wednesday nights where he goes. And it's on the way at the well, maybe really at the well. Uh, <laughs> this guy's coming, interacting with the gospel every Friday morning as he's reading through the reason for God. And what's amazing is what Casey has done was she has, uh, she rides the public, she takes public transportation to work at her architecture firm uh, downtown every morning. So there's this group of like six or eight people on the bus that she rides with most every morning. One of them is an older man. Uh, So she's like, hey, why don't I buy you this book? And you read it, we'll talk about it on the bus. So it's happening. So she comes, she's part of our reading group. We're kind of equipping her for it. And then she's doing it on the way, like literally on the way, on the bus as they're driving to work. She has coworkers that uh, they play tennis with. Well, guess what? They bought the book for them too. They're reading through the book. So they're introducing their friends to to the gospel um, through a book that engages them at this intellectual level, dealing with things like suffering, dealing with things like uh, hasn't science disproved the Bible? Questions that the people in our city are legitimately asking, they're doing it on the way at the well. And what happens is we have to see the totality of our lives, though, under the lordship of Jesus for us to gain the mindset, the perspective for this to happen. And I know there's some beautiful stories of this happening even here. Um, And I just want to lean in and push us to say that we can't just point to one or two people and say they're the ones who do it for us. No, we, we have to lean in together and all of us submitting the totality of our lives to the Lordship of Jesus so that all of our lives on the way are marked by this gospel intentionality we see in the life of our Savior. He is the pattern for us in this. 
When Jesus satisfies our spiritual thirst with living water, what he does then is he transforms our worship and reorients our witness. As we work through the backside of this text, I want us to notice the sequence and the connection between our worship and our witness. Jesus first transforms a woman's worship, which then informs and reorients her witness. Why is this the case? Because we all bear witness to that which we worship. There is an inseparable link between the two. If we talk together for 10 minutes, I will tell you what you worship. Because you're going to bear witness to whatever it is that you worship. So Jesus transforms the worship. This is what happens as the Spirit gives new spiritual life in our lives. He's going to work, transforming what we worship, turning our hearts in worship to Jesus. And in turn, it reorients our witness from the things of this world to the things of our Savior. So like the Samaritan woman, before having our spiritual thirst quenched and satisfied by Jesus, we worship what we do not know. This is the nature of sin. It's idolatry. It's worshiping something or someone in place of the one true God who alone is infinitely and eternally worthy. And yet when Jesus quenches our thirst with living water, he goes to work in our hearts, turning us away from those things that that act like salt water and turn us to the life-giving water that comes as from him as the gift of God. He transforms our worship knowing our eternal joy and satisfaction is found in rightly worshiping the one for whom we were created. And as we pour out our lives to Jesus in worship, he then, in turn, the fountain of living waters is fully quenching and truly satisfying our thirst. And I I won't spend any time here except for to note that There are two ways that Jesus transforms worship. One is that worship is no longer bound by location, form, or ethnicity. Praise the Lord. That's what we see happening here in Jesus' interaction with the Samaritan woman. They had wrongly thought that Mount Gerizim was a place of true worship. The Jews rightly acknowledged Jerusalem as a place of true worship, but the Jews also got it wrong in that they, they elevated ritual over faith. And so Jesus has fulfilled all these Old Testament laws, types, and shadows in his life, death, and resurrection so that all the peoples of the earth can know the Father by the work of the Spirit through faith in Jesus the Son. Andrew Murray writes in With Christ in the School of Prayer, as God is spirit, not bound by space or time, but in his infinite perfection, always and everywhere the same, so his worship would henceforth no longer be confined by place or form, but spiritual as God himself is spiritual. So he tr- worship is no longer bound by location, form, or ethnicity. It is now worship is in spirit and in truth, and it happens through our lives. I would just reference Romans 12, 1, where Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is what? Your spiritual worship. To worship in spiritual and truth then means this. It means to live the totality of our lives in glad submission and joyful obedience to Jesus our Lord. That's what it looks like to worship in spirit and truth. It looks like a life of glad submission and joyful obedience to Jesus our Lord. Jesus is truly our satisfaction. Because there's this inseparable link between what we worship and what we bear witness to, Jesus first transforms our worship, then he reorients, redirects our witness around then the person or the object of our worship. And that's what we see in verses 27 through 42. 
As Jesus' disciples return from Sychar with food, the Samaritan woman leaves her water jar behind, returns to her town to do what? To bear witness about Jesus. The woman came to the well to draw water alone. Now she goes to her town to gather people to hear the good news about the person and work of Jesus. She says, come, see a man who told me all that I ever did. Can this be the Christ? Perhaps she said more, though this is all that is recorded. What we do know is that her testimony was compelling enough that they went out of the town and were coming to meet him. And many Samaritans from that town believed in him because of the woman's testimony. The Samaritan woman did not have a well-developed theology. She had no training in uh, evangelism. What she did have was a life-changing, life-giving message of Jesus as the Christ, the giver of living water. In verse 42, the people of Sychar said to the woman, It's no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. And this is what we want our people to know, uh, that we believe by faith and we know by experience. That's Henry Blackby language. We believe by faith, but we know by experience. They, the people of the town, they believe because of the woman's testimony. But they came to know Jesus by experience as they had personal communion and interaction with him. He stays on with them a couple of days. And this town is apparently transformed. There is a great change brought because Jesus was very intentional with his time on the way at the well. This is the kind of kingdom impact we're praying for in Portland. Say, God, make our, make our city like this town. Make our city like this town where they come to see and savor Jesus as the Christ, the source of living water. Turn our hearts away from those things which do not give life, those things which the Bible says enslave us unto death. And give us life in the name of Jesus. We desire to see the gospel spread over the 95 neighborhoods that make up our city. Our prayer is that over the next 20 years, that 1% more will believe. Not 1% above the current Christian. 1% of our population will believe. That means over the next 20 years, what we're praying for is 22,000 people to turn in faith to Jesus, the source of life-giving water. That's our prayer. That's what we are loving and laboring to see happen in our city. What we know is that in order to see this kind of work happen in our city, we must have a kingdom mindset. So Chandra and I, we've been praying for the better part of two years, saying, God, would you please either raise up or send in another laborer? Uh, another man who would help pastor, who would help plant, who would help shoulder some of the load and the responsibility that you have called us to and you have entrusted to us. So we're thankful uh, to share with you that God has answered that prayer. Um, Though we would share that God has not answered that prayer quite in the way that we expected that he would answer that prayer. Over the course of the summer, I began to have conversations with another church planter in our city who arrived the same summer that we did. So they've been in the city now three and a half years planting a church called Remedy City Church, nine miles away from where we are. So we started talking and praying and dreaming about what we may be able to do together and how we may be able to do more together than we could do separately. 
So we have talked, we have prayed, we've invited in wise counsel. We sense clearly that this is God's push for us into making this kind of kingdom impact in our city, doing more together than we could do separately. So beginning in January, our two church plants are going to merge into a single church plant so that we can leverage more of our resources and do much more together than either of us could do separately. This, we receive this as God's kindness to us. We receive this as God's answer to prayer for us. And let me share with you a couple of ways that we already are seeing the ability to do more together than we can do separately. One, there's going to be a continuity of ministry. That's, that's really God's greatest kindness to us, I believe, in all of this. And so, like, our partnership in India with Prayer Tower Church is going to continue. Our partnership with Zomi Bethel Church, a church plant among Burmese refugees in southeast Portland, is going to continue. Not only are those relationships going to continue, but we're going to be able to give more time and attention and focus to those relationships because we're going to have shared leadership. We won't have one person doing all the planting and all the pastoring and all the missions and all the groups. We'll be able to share that together. And in God's kindness, he's extending what we're able to do globally and locally. As we go into the new year, the relationship we have with Zomi Bethel Church in southeast Portland, we're entering into a similar kind of relationship with a Chinese church on the west side of the city. And in, as a means of just God's abundant goodness to us, Chandra and I, we, we were able to serve with IMB for a year in India. We love India. And... Um, as we go into the new year, there's a group of about 50 or so, 50 or 70 Indian believers who are gathering together to fellowship. And so we're in conversations with them about coming under and being a part of our church, yet being distinct from it. And so this is the most fluid of all, but the piece of it I am the most excited about it. So it could be as we go into the new year that we have an Indian congregation who begins to gather in the same building as us having a Hindi-speaking uh, gathering while all of our kids are in children's ministry together. So we're really thrilled about what God is doing there. Not only that, but our plant has been affirmed by the North American Mission Board and, and what we're doing together, so much so that beginning next year, our plant will become a hub of sorts for church planting happening in Portland so that as all new church planters come into the city, they'll receive their first six to 12 months of training through our plant. And so we don't know a lot. We know three and a half years worth. But we want to be leveraging that for the good of new planters coming into the city because we find it completely unacceptable that in, the, in our country, with the abundant resources of, of dollars and people, that we've not had a plant in Portland in the last 20 years when we've had an increase in population of more than 140,000 people. So by God's grace, we are loving and laboring and we're willing to make any kind of changes or sacrifices in order for God's kingdom to come in Portland as it is in heaven. For God to do in, among our people what he did among the people here of Sychar. That is our prayer. That's what we are giving our lives for, as I know you guys are doing here in Tuscaloosa. And we're so grateful for not just sending us, but for investing in what God is doing in Portland. And I want you to know it makes a difference. It is making a difference. And I can't wait uh, to be able to come back, I don't know, whenever God says, to share with you. And I certainly can't wait until you guys begin to come out 
and join and participate with us in what God is doing in our John 4 ministry context. Because having partnering churches, our sending church, come and serve with us for a week, one, it, is, it, bring, it brings a sense of encouragement. Of, uh, it's a mean of, means of God sustaining grace in our lives to help us persevere, but also pushes us forward as you guys leverage the gifts, the talents, the abilities that God has uniquely wired into this congregation, leveraging that for the good of our church in Portland and our friends and neighbors who are still far from Jesus. So let's close with this. God invites us to participate in his harvest as both sowers and reapers. Verse 35, Jesus speaks of the harvest. In Luke 10, he's saying, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers. In 1 Corinthians, Paul writes, he who plants and who waters, they're not anything. But God who gives the growth. And let us pray that God would send out laborers. And let us pray that God will give the growth. And may we be found faithful in sending out laborers and sowing seeds of the gospel on the way at the well. It may be that this week one of you encounters Nicodemus from John 3 or the woman of Samaria in John 4, and you're able to affirm their humanity, expose their need, and make a clear gospel offer. Maybe it moves them from a minus 4 to a minus 3, but maybe at that moment God brings the growth and the spirit works of the word of the gospel, regenerating their otherwise dead and unresponsive heart so that they may respond in faith to Jesus Jesus is the Savior of the world. That's how the people of Sychar identified him in verse 42. Do you know that's only one of two places in all the scriptures that Jesus is called the Savior of the world? Well, these Samaritans rightly recognize Jesus as the Savior of the world. May we grasp that. May we believe that. May that have an impact then on our, uh, how we invest our time, our talents, our treasures, our testimonies. May our lives come in line with Jesus and his life-giving message. And may we say with the prophet Isaiah, come everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. Let's pray. Father, thank you for sending your son to live and die and be raised for us. Father, thank you for the invitation to come to the waters, to have our spiritual thirst quenched by an eternally satisfying Savior. Thank you for the work of your spirit in our lives, uh, giving us spiritual life. Thank you for the work of your spirit in our lives to bear witness to Jesus. And God, I pray that you would increase both our faithfulness and our fruitfulness to this end. We pray that you would give us the growth in Tuscaloosa and in Portland. To the praise of your glorious grace, we pray. Amen.